Hello, and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of April 22nd. Can LIBOR transition during a pandemic? I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton as we focus on the impact that coronavirus has had on the sulfur LIBOR transition and ultimately answer the question, will LIBOR go away at the end of 2021? Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the High Quality Spreads podcast. We are going to focus on the sulfur LIBOR transition, but I thought before we get into that topic, we'll at least provide an overview on our view of the credit markets, given all that's happening in recent weeks. In last week's episode, we talked a lot about Fed liquidity facilities and how they've managed to really help risk assets outperform over the course of the past few weeks. But we concluded that podcast by talking about how there was still a lot of credit concern in the market that would ultimately likely lead to risk assets taking another leg lower at some point in the future. And given the strength of the rally we'd seen over the past few weeks, that taking profits might not be a bad idea in the current environment. And Dan, some of the headlines coming out of the oil sector over the last week do nothing to dissuade that view. Yeah, oil is definitely the story of this week, having traded negative on Monday and Tuesday. And this was largely a technical move, but there's certainly a fundamental portion going on as well. Even the June contract has fallen to 14 or $15 as of this recording. Now, the consequences for the corporate market are obvious. The energy sector has over $400 billion in the triple B segment of the investment grade index, and those are obviously at risk of fallen angels. But beyond this, there's some possibility that we have talked about a little bit, Dan, that oil is now pricing in something that equities haven't thus far, something that has been overlooked by other risk assets. And it seems like the impact of this lockdown in oil prices has become clear. Oil has a unique feature in that there's the capacity constraints, and that's largely why oil traded negative early this week. But because of this constraint, it might be more susceptible to swings in supply and demand. And we've seen in other industries some stories about inventories growing and production slowing down because it's simply not worth the cost. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the experts in the oil space, certainly not us, but the experts have been all over this from the very beginning. We've seen oil price fall and fall as the impact of demand from coronavirus became very clear. Then we have a quote-unquote historic agreement by OPEC to slash production as much as 20 million, according to President Trump, but at least 9.7 million barrels per day. And oil prices didn't budge at all. For people outside the oil sector, that was quite surprising. But oil market participants saw right through the production cuts as they knew that the drop in supply wasn't enough to counteract the drop in demand that was coming from lockdown. But even oil experts who knew all this didn't price in the full impact of diminished demand, as we can see by the price action of the past two weeks in oil. And a similar pattern may soon play out in other markets where we're talking about food being left to rot because it's not worth the labor expense of picking it. Inventories at manufacturers and clothing and on down the line just piling up while nobody buys. 
we might see prices for these goods follow a similar pattern as oil as the full extent of coronavirus gets priced in and, and downgrades, defaults, job losses exceed even what the market's projecting now, leading to another decline in risk assets. But we should mention the news isn't all bad. We've also had some quite positive news over the course of the last week. First and foremost, likely improving coronavirus headlines. We've seen New York potentially peaking here. Data out of Europe suggesting a peak in Europe. As a result, President Trump last Thursday unveiled his plan to reopen the American economy, with some states potentially coming online within the next week or two. Now, it's going to take a long time for the whole country to reopen, but clearly the economy restarting is very good news. We've long talked about how the future path of risk assets now depends on two things, the efficacy of response from the Fed and from the government in regarding their stimulus, as well as when they reopen. So reopening is a huge milestone for the markets here. Now we just have to make sure that another wave two doesn't come in the next couple months. On the same note, we got news this morning of another stimulus package worth almost $500 billion, over $300 billion of which are going to be going to the PPP program that we talked about in last week's episode that is the most beneficial of the government stimulus packages another $300 billion in funding for that after it ran out of money. And maybe most impactful of all of these was the leaked results of the Chicago remdesivir trial. Now, we note that the full results from Gilead on remdesivir have not yet been released for its phase three trial, only just the Chicago portion leaked. But those leaked results were extremely encouraging. Of the 113 patients that were already severely ill, we saw only two fatalities, according to the leaked report. So if those results are able to be replicated across the full phase three trial, this really represents an actual game changer here for our view on risk asset markets, because it implies for the very first time that we might not have a second wave, whether that's in the next few weeks or in the fall. If remdesivir is actually an effective treatment for coronavirus, maybe we're not going to have another significant episode of social distancing. And the economic ramifications of that are massive. So we didn't want to be purely underweight at that point. We wanted to at least be exposed to very high credit quality spread products, given the possibility of the release of a fully successful remdesivir phase three trial, as well as some of the other positive news we just talked about. But we still recommend underweighting lower credit quality investments, reflecting what we talked about earlier, that the full extent of coronavirus has not yet likely been priced into markets. So on that note, Dan, I want to transition to our sort of focus topic of this week's podcast, which is the impact that coronavirus is having on the sulfur-LIBOR transition. So to start, can you give us an update on how sulfur-FRN issuance has developed in the past couple of weeks? Yeah, sulfur issuance has exploded over the beginning of 2020. To put some numbers around it, issuance year to date is at $269 billion. For all of 2019, issuance was only $279 billion. So we're just $10 billion behind the total issuance in the SOFR FRN market that we were in all of last year. Most of this has been dominated by the GSEs. Fannie and Freddie have to fund forbearance under the CARES Act, and they've chosen to do this largely through SOFR floaters. Uh, another reason is that the LIBOR SOFR bases are right now very advantageous for issuers. And we've seen sort of a reversal of what we had in the fourth quarter of last year when issuers were moving away from SOFR and issuing against LIBOR. They've moved back into SOFR, and that's why we've seen such heavy issuance this year. And then since we're at the zero bound, there's another additional aspect of it with the floor on some of these floaters, right, Dan? 
Yeah, it's worth mentioning here, given how rapidly rates have fallen, that most SOFR FRNs have a zero floor, and particularly the GSE issuers who dominate the market, they all have zero floors. In the corporate and the SSA market, it's more of a case-by-case basis, so you'd have to double-check there. But the vast majority of SOFR floaters have a zero floor, and that's something that's important, as LIBOR floaters don't necessarily have that. And the specter of negative rates here in the U.S., continues to rise as the Fed employs new and inventive ways to deal with the fallout from the coronavirus. We'll just mention here that SOFR going negative is unlikely in the first place, given the Fed's overnight reverse repo facility that should soak up excess cash. There is a bit of a premium for repo given liquidity available throughout the day, whereas the RRP is available just once a day. But even with that premium, we shouldn't see 25% or more of repo transactions trading below zero. And recall that in the calculation of SOFR, the Federal Reserve ignores the bottom 25% of repo transactions. That was originally designed to make sure that special treasury securities don't impact the calculation of SOFR, but also works to just drop the lowest print since it's unlikely that specials account for 25% of repo transactions. So any negative prints that do actually come across will probably be cut off and SOFR will stay above zero, but you never know if that's the case. And if it's not, SOFR floaters do have that zero floor that might become attractive for investors that own them. And all of that is not to mention this heavy treasury issuance that will put some pressure on repo too, right? Yeah, it's a good point, Dan. Now moving to potentially more impactful storylines of the past few weeks, let's talk about the impact that the market volatility of the past few weeks has potentially had on LIBOR fallbacks upon the transition to SOFR. Yeah. So remember, just stepping back for a second, ISDA and the ARC have decided that for contracts that reference LIBOR currently and fall back to SOFR upon LIBOR cessation, there'll be a spread adjusted to compensate users for the fact that LIBOR is a higher rate than SOFR. That spread that is added to the new SOFR contract is going to be based on the median difference between LIBOR and SOFR over the past five years. So going into this year, we thought that would be about 23 basis points as the median of three-month LIBOR minus three-month SOFR. Obviously, given where LIBOR is printed relative to other short rates this year, that could be much higher than we initially thought. Right now, if LIBOR were to cease, that spread would be about 25 basis points, so about two basis points higher. And then given where futures are printing and the projected path of LIBOR over the rest of this year, we might see even higher, like 27 basis points by middle or end of this year. And just to clarify, Dan, those forecasts you're putting forward are just assuming that spot LIBOR moves in line with the futures. Is that right? Yep, that's right. So futures are projecting, obviously, a big fall in LIBOR going forward as financial market conditions ease. But if we see another period of volatility, if there's a second wave of coronavirus or what have you, if defaults and downgrades get very large and there's some concern over the banking sector and LIBOR again increases, we're going to see a fallback potentially higher than that, even reaching into the low 30s? Yeah. And we don't even need LIBOR to stay as elevated as it is right now. As long as it is still above this 25, 27 basis points, that's going to push the median higher and push the eventual fallback spread higher than our estimated 25 basis points. So this is clearly a topic worth monitoring for all people who have exposure to the transition. You know, Heading into this year, we all just kind of talked about the transition as, yo, it'll be something like 22, 23 basis points. But the volatility we've seen in LIBOR just this year alone You've seen the impact it's had and the impact it will continue to have over the next year and a half while we try to price in where the fallback's actually going to come. ISDA talked about using a transition period to sort of smooth the impact from spot 
to LIBOR determined by the credit spread once LIBOR is no longer in production. But that transition period was ultimately overruled. So there is going to be a significant move on LIBOR the day that LIBOR ceases to be published. And so keeping track of where that is is going to be extremely important for people. And it also, with the fallback moving higher, this also potentially means swap spreads can be higher, right, Dan? Yeah. So swap spreads are eventually going to price to that fallback spread. And the higher that goes, the wider we expect swap spreads to trade. So these are just a few of the impacts that coronavirus in the past few weeks has had on the SOFR LIBOR transition. But it's also impacted probably the most important question of all. And that is, will LIBOR continue to exist past 2021? Now, Anyone who's listened to us before thought that we were a little skeptical of LIBOR completely going away by the end of 2021. And any doubt that we had that LIBOR would actually go away has probably been removed by what's happened with the coronavirus here recently. And that all comes down to the main obstacle that remains in transitioning from LIBOR to SOFR, and that is the cash market's readiness and inadequate fallback language that still pervades a lot of the cash markets. Now, if there was any hope that SOFR was going to be able to replace LIBOR at the end of 2021, it was going to be vital that the cash market, the lending side, really took a hard look at LIBOR exposures in 2020 and started coming up with solutions to that, either renegotiation of contracts to a different benchmark or by increasing hedges, you know, working with regulators and and other counterparties to try and figure out how to allay some of that LIBOR exposure. Instead, any effort that would have been focused on that this year has likely been repurposed to mitigating the impact of coronavirus and what lockdown has meant to the banking sector as a whole. So we've already lost the first quarter of 2020. We're probably going to lose the first half before anyone really refocuses on this. And by then, it will probably be too late. Also vital to cash markets being able to transition to SOFR from LIBOR is the creation of a term SOFR rate that ARC has been working on. And coronavirus even has an impact there. Isn't that right? Yeah, Dan, I completely agree. I mean, there were a lot of decisions and problems that needed to be solved. And most of the industry professionals and regulators simply have bigger things to focus on right now. And it's unlikely that that's going to change in the near term. Remember when the ARC put out its pace transition timeline, they described that as aggressive. And it seems like it's probably unlikely that they're going to hit all of those goals at this point. But to your point about the term rate, that's going to be another obstacle. With SOFR at the zero bound and strong forward guidance from the Fed, it doesn't seem like the market is pricing in any possibility of a rate increase. And that might reduce the demand for trading SOFR futures. And remember, the current plan by the ARC to create a term rate is to use futures to bootstrap a term curve. And in order to do that, the ARC has been very explicit about the need for there to be deep and liquid futures markets that make any term rate resilient to any attempts at manipulation. And so we really need volumes to increase beyond where they are now. And that seems a little bit less likely now that the Fed is at the zero bound for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, there are some factors that we could point to that might mitigate some of that drop in futures volume that I agree with you is likely to come with the Fed now at the effect of lower bound. And certainly the most important one is the Main Street lending facility announced by the Fed is going to be denominating all of their loans in SOFR and not in LIBOR. Now, I think that there are other reasons the Fed chose to do this. I think, obviously, had these loans been denominated in LIBOR, were credit conditions to deteriorate once again, we could see LIBOR move much higher and these loans actually become not only not advantageous, but actually 
above market rates for these small and medium-sized borrowers who are going to get them and then contribute to further economic weakness if these loans caused more economic hardship. So by denominating these loans in SOFR, no matter what happens really, it's pretty clear here going forward that SOFR is going to remain very, very low. So by denominating these loans in SOFR, the Fed takes away some potential for more economic contagion through these loans, but it's also very beneficial for the transition process. And that was likely at least a contributing factor. Because we've talked in the past about how there's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem for the term SOFR rate. And that's that the cash market needs the term SOFR rate in order to transition away from LIBOR. But to get a term SOFR rate, you need to have robust futures and swap activity in order to derive the term rate. But that comes from the derivative market, which is primarily a hedging market. And so it can be said that the derivative market needs the cash market because we need to have cash assets that will be hedged with SOFR in order to get derivative volumes increasing to the level where we could create a term SOFR. But with Main Street lending facility loans denominated in SOFR, we're finally getting SOFR-denominated assets on bank balance sheets through the Main Street lending facility. Now, these loans are floating rate loans. So hedging of interest rate risk is probably not going to be something banks have to do. But most banks still look at their cost of funds in terms of LIBOR. So we could start to see more activity in SOFR LIBOR basis swaps or other related instruments. The important thing here being that with more SOFR denominated assets on bank balance sheets, we should see more demand in the derivative market, which will ultimately lead to term SOFR being created. Yeah. And even more broadly than the Main Street lending facility, we've seen a lot more assets denominated in SOFR. And we've said since the beginning of this process that time is going to solve all of the problems. And so even another year or two, I think, will really help this transition go a lot more smoothly. Yeah. And just even before any of this happened, it seemed like LIBOR existing past 2021 is what was best for all the markets involved. Even if that means LIBOR is just quote unquote zombie LIBOR, where it's determined off of some fixed spread to SOFR or something, a LIBOR is going to need to be printed. And I think that there's a growing recognition of that among market participants. And now the events of the past few weeks with coronavirus likely gives the market the rationale it was sort of looking for in order to extend the existence of LIBOR without the transition appearing to be, quote unquote, behind schedule. Agreed. So we'll continue to monitor anything relating to the SOFR LIBOR transition and obviously talk about it in future podcasts or written material as it comes out. And thanks very much for listening today. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. 
Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 